Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Third Act. So did anybody notice that we changed our theme music a couple weeks ago? I kind of like the new upbeat instrumentals and that little ding at the end. Adds a little bit of spice to the opening. A shout out to my audio editor, Andrew Lind, for developing the track. So on to the show. Today I talk with Carrie Hannon, the consummate writer. Carrie's a longtime journalist and author, having written for Forbes, Money, U.S. News and World Report, and USA Today. And she's authored more than seven books. Most interesting for this show, though, is that Carrie began writing about second acts in the early knots long before any other publications or certainly before I started thinking about it. She's an expert in issues related to the future of the workplace, particularly for our aging population, which we've talked a lot about on this show. On today's show, she talks about where the workplace is headed, her new book, In Control of 50 Plus, How to Succeed in the New World of Work, and why dogs are very good teachers. Enjoy the show. Carrie, welcome so much to Third Act. Where do we find you today? Oh, I am in Washington, D.C., and it is terrific to be with you. Thanks uh, thanks for inviting me to be on. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, you're a prolific writer and a longtime journalist, but you're also a big horse and dog fan. And you told me something interesting when we first met. You said that everything you know about loving your work, you learn from your dog. So you must have a very fun-loving dog. <laughs> well, I've got a Labrador Retriever, and that is probably the world's most fun-loving dog, you know. And she's, you know, she's got it down to a science. <laughs> what did your dog teach you about work? Oh, so many, so many things. You know, first of all, it's all about networking, right? It's getting out there, you know, socializing with other dogs, getting ideas of what fun things you can get into. Number two, it's curiosity. It's always looking at, you know, what's going on? Oh, what's going on? You know, always being open to new adventures, new stimuli. She always wants to jump in the car and go someplace. So, you know, get out, go do things, push yourself out of your comfort zone. And oh gosh, there's so many other things. She, when she's focused on something, like catching the ball, trust me, this is full focus. <laughs> and so we could all learn to be a little more focused on our work projects and not get distracted. <laughs> and my dog is exactly the same way. But backing up a bit, did you always know you wanted to be a writer? And how did you get started? It's a bit unusual. But I honestly, from the minute I can remember uh, having the thoughts about what I might want to do, it was always that I wanted to be a writer. It was always. I mean, I wrote my first book, I think, when I was 11 years old or 12 years old and on a, on a, on a notebook, a spiral notebook, and I still have it. It has yet to be published. But trust me, one day, one day, I have clung to it all these years. And um, it's guess what? It's about horses and dogs and a big family and, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, summer adventures is what that book was about. And I guess my whole life, I thought maybe I would get back to writing about horses and and animals and dogs and and write fiction, right? And that's what that was, fiction. But guess what? I write nonfiction. <laughs> that's what I do. So I always wanted to be a writer. I just, you know, as I got older, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I was like, okay, um, how can I make money as a writer, right? You have to find a job. <laughs> right, right. But you you went you went on to write for so many notable publications, Forbes, Money, US News and World Report. And you told me eventually you got your dream job as a columnist at USA Today, but you said you hated it. Why? Tell us the story. 
Well, first, you know, I will say that that's why I got into journalism, because I finally figured out that one way I could make money as a writer was to be a journalist. And where I went to college, to Duke University, they did not at the time have a journalism program. And what I would do is I would go and interview I love horses, as you mentioned at the top. And so I would go, uh, when I was competing on my horse at horse shows, and interview professional horse people and write up their profile about their work and what they loved about it. And I'd public get those published in horse magazines. So that kind of started my path. Was this when you were in college? Uh, yeah. Oh, well, before college, like just end of high school, beginning of college. And the reason I got to Forbes magazine is because my dad got Forbes magazine at home. And that my dad was a small businessman and he loved Forbes magazine. It made uh, business fun. And uh, every story was, oh, the pity of it or oh, the wonder of it. And so I just set my little mind that I was going to get a job at Forbes magazine. So I got there. But what happened by the time I got to USA Today, and truly, I mean, they're great people there. I had a fabulous editor, really, really great stuff. And I had that opportunity to do the column with my little picture on it. And it was about taxes and retirement. It was called Your Money. But what was hard for me, Liz, is that here I was, I'd always been a magazine. This took me years to figure out, but I had always been a magazine writer. And so more time, featurey, you didn't write on a deadline, like in an hour kind of work. And I also had my own office and always had my own office. And here I was working with, my editor was quite really right at my shoulder. And my colleagues were within arm's stretch of me. And it was this huge newsroom and loud and noisy and they, you couldn't leave the newsroom, really. I mean, it was like a biosphere. You, If you wanted to go over to Georgetown for lunch, that at that time they were in Roslyn, Virginia, and you had to cross the Potomac River, you had to ask permission. And I, I just was like, I was in you know my 40s by then, and I thought, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I thought, my goodness. So it was overwhelming for me, and I didn't know it. I just knew I was miserable. And I went to visit my parents and... Uh, my dad's like, how's your job? And I'm like, you know, I, I'm really unhappy. I'm, and he said, well, quit. And so I went back and I did quit right then that week. Um, and But I'll tell you the truth. It took me years. It took me years to, of self-analysis. Nobody told this to me except myself when I realized, you know what? It was the anxiety of being in this big newsroom. It was. It just created a work environment that didn't work for me personally. It it was fabulous. The people were great, but um, emotionally it was really, really hard for me. And so luckily I pulled the, I pulled the plug. I got out of there, but I didn't burn the bridge. I continued to write for them as a contractor. I launched my own media business then, and I'd already written two books at that point, but I pushed forward doing more books and everybody I'd ever worked for, U.S. News and World Report, Forbes, USA Today, they became my clients. And so I had this built-in group of, of wonderful publications to write for. You kind of changed it up. You know, it's interesting because a lot of times I give advice to younger people about, you know, their career and things. And I always say to them, if you don't know what you want to do, like you don't definitively want to be a consultant or a nurse or a lawyer or whatever, just figure out what you don't like about sort of or what you like, don't like about what you're doing. And I mean, that's a classic example. You didn't like the fishbowl environment. And I can understand that. I mean, it, you know, it's not for everybody, but, you know, good to know you were able to keep keep your clients going. So at that point, you took sort of a diversion when you quit and a big one, which is you went to write about Navajo weaving, which is really different. So what happened there? Tell us more about that. 
Yeah, that was kind of my off-ramp to USA Today because just as I uh, was getting ready to to put in my resignation, one of my dearest friends, a fabulous photographer, was doing a coffee table book about Navajo weavers. And because it was a dying art, as the young people were moving off the reservation, the mothers weren't handing the tools down to continue this craft. And so she said, and the writer who was supposed to write the profiles of these weavers kind of uh, threw their hands up and walked away from the project. So they're like, who are we going to get to write this? And Marcy was already going, Marcy Hoquist was her name, was already going to write, to do the uh, photography, which is magnificent. And she said, oh, my friend Carrie can do this, you know, because she knew I absolutely love to write people's stories. And so, uh, yeah, so I had that book in my pocket and off I went uh, right away to the four corners where, um, what is it, Utah and Colorado and New Mexico and Arizona all come together to the Navajo Reservation and Tisnos Pass, and I was the um, trading post there. And Marcy and I spent some time, and she did her work, and I interviewed some of these weavers. And, you know, a couple of them didn't speak English, and I had to have a translator. They spoke Navajo, and one in particular stands out in my mind, and she was in her 80s then, and her name was Mary, and she wove monumental rugs, Liz. I mean, they were monumental. They were huge, and they were magnificent and beautiful, and she lived 45 minutes down a dirt road from a paved road in a Hogan that was quite small with no running water, no electricity, and she had raised eight children there, and her loom took up practically the whole thing, and I thought to myself with my East Coast sensibilities, what? You know, this is America. And I just had never seen anything like this. But you know what? Mary was pure joy. I mean, her work was beautiful and she just bubbled. She was so, her heart was so great and it was in her work. She loved, it was so clear. She just loved what she did so much. So through the tr- the translator, I was asking her questions. And at one point she said, you ask questions nobody thinks about. And she was right. <laughs> and I went outside and I looked at where she lived and I thought, this is really, really special. And it hit me so hard, you know, that whole thing that what it is that motivates, motivates us, what it is like to do work that you truly love what really matters in life. And, and it, I came away from that trip changed forever. And I really reevaluated my own priorities, my own work, what mattered to me. And I always think of Mary because here was a woman who just had had challenges perhaps, but for her, life was not so ch- as challenging. She found beauty. And, and there's a Navajo saying, may you walk in beauty. And that that's certainly what she did. May you walk in beauty. That's, I have to remember that sounds like a much easier life than a lot of us lead in spite of only living in a Hogan, correct? Yeah. And with no electricity and running water. I mean, seriously. So at any rate, Mary Mary was quite special, but they all were. And I learned so much. And it was just a wonderful way to uh, pivot myself from working in the environment I had been working in and kind of on that path of writing about personal finance and retirement and taxes and all that. And I suddenly just opened this door to writing about work and jobs and careers and what we do every day, what we do to sustain us. And what'd you do when you came back then after writing the Navajo book? So I wrote the book and, and then I started writing for U.S. News and World Report, who was my employer immediately before USA Today. They were just starting the second X column. And what year was this? 
I think it's around 2007, 2006, 2007. And uh, Tim uh, Smart, who was the editor there, the business editor, he's, he had asked around his in-house staff and nobody uh, seemed to want to do it. And it what it was, was you had to write profiles of people who had done something for 20 or 30 years and made a, a big 360 turn to do something completely different, you know? So it was aimed at baby boomers at that time who were making these big life shifts. But Honestly, Liz, nobody was writing about this. This was like just starting to percolate in people's brains that this was something that was going to be a trend moving forward. And you had to go out, you had to find these people, then you had to write their story. And I think a lot of journalists at the time, just it's hard to find people to illustrate stories who actually want to share all of this personal information with you. So I said, yeah, Tim, I raised my hand as a contractor. I was like, fantastic. I'd love to do this. And I love, and coming from that, writing those stories of those weavers, I knew I just love writing about people. So I just put out my contacts with my network and I just mined the territory. And I spent three and a half years traveling around the United States, meeting people who had done this very thing. And I tell you, they were, it was just so fantastic. And it wasn't like I wanted to be these people or do their jobs, but I was so inspired by them. I wanted to take their magic with me. Every time I left one, I thought, oh, I want to be more, you know, I want to be more like that, more willing to take these kind of risks and really believing in myself. And so these were, you know, amazing stories, people who went from Microsoft to starting a water company or someone started a coffee business, someone ran away with the circus, someone started a chocolate business, someone became a, a, a Nashville music agent and she had been an, uh, a cop in Los in, uh, California. So, you know, these big career shifts and I just loved it. So it was a lot of fun. And I turned that into my book, uh, What's Next? Follow Your Passion and Find a Dream Job. When you were writing those stories, was it equally men and women in terms of the sort of second act stories that you found? Yeah. So I definitely, I I did try to keep it even that way. So yeah. In addition to your writing and the things that you do, you're also a workplace futurist. What does that mean? My new book that's coming out is In Control at 50 Plus, How to Succeed in the New World of Work. And I've spent so much time in my career really trying to tease out what are the trends, where are we going? I write a lot about news you can use, right? So service journalism, things that I can give people advice to take with them that can help them move their career forward or their personal finance life, make it stronger. And so by workplace futurist, I'm really just putting a, a, a title on my the research I've done to really try to look ahead and give people that that kind of be their Sherpa along the way to say, this is what's coming up and these are the trends I see happening and how you can best prepare yourself for that. So tell us a little bit about some of the trends that you see happening. Yeah. So coming out of the pandemic, it's just... Uh, been quite interesting to look at for my pop, my peeps, as I call them, my 50 plus crowd. There's a lot of, of things that are major trends. And, and frankly, a lot of this list started before we all, you know, went into lockdown, you know, this sort of isolation mode in 2020. 
But it, the major trends I see coming out in this as the workplace has shifted, of course, you've interviewed a, a colleague of mine, Bradley Sherman, who has written about the big population switches. So we see we have this aging population. The work, you know, so we have a tight, the labor force is quite tight. The job market is quite tight right now. And employers are needing to turn and pay attention to the older workforce in a way that maybe they haven't in years. But the big trends are one. This is no surprise. The first one is remote work is here to stay, right? The genie's out of the bottle. It had started beforehand, mostly to tell you the truth, younger workers who are digital nomads had said, you know what? I don't have to work in an office. I can work wherever I am. And they had started negotiating for this with employers. And there were some employers who were ahead of the curve on this had already started to be more accepting of having a remote workforce. But for many of us, it wasn't uh, an easy skate. You had to really negotiate that. And it was a perk. Coming out of the pandemic, now everyone's done it. They've learned that the workforce can be productive and performance is high. And so the things that used to be considered drawbacks uh, really seems like not so much. And for employers, they learned it was a cost saver in many ways, right? Because they didn't... um, So the remote work and why it is so fabulous for older workers, there's two reasons. One, I think it goes a long way to fighting ageism. If you're not sitting side by side with somebody who's 20, 30 years younger than you, it's subliminal in a way. But your manager or those around you don't necessarily see you as an older worker, right? You're being judged on your work, by your performance. And now, yes, you have to do all those things. You have to communicate. You have to make sure you're really, really good with the technology and understand how remote work operates. But this is not a problem. This is not something uh, we that any of us had trouble with. And if we did, we know how to do it now. So it's good because it fights ageism because you're not judged like a book on its cover. Secondly. If you have any health issues or ability issues, which maybe a lot of people over the years, you'll look at, they'll say, oh, I'm going to retire. I'm going to push my retirement date to later. But in fact, they end up retiring sooner than they thought they would. And it's usually because of a health issue. And so in that case, if it's a mobility thing that makes the commute difficult or the office isn't set up uh, to accommodate you, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. You can work from anywhere now uh, uh, because of remote work. You're, you're not as sort of set in the kind of jobs you can take. So I think it's opened that up. So I love remote work. A piece that's come out of it that's not so great about the remote work is contract work. So more employers have also moved to, you'll look at job listings and they're like, oh, it's remote, but they're also a real surge in, in contract or temporary kind of positions, short-term projects. So let's call it self-employed. Why this is is good on one level is for an older worker who wants to just extend their working life and work, you know, work on a different kind of more flexible schedule for workers. And that might be somebody 60 to 70 or so. But if you're 50 to 60 and you still need your benefits, this is not a great trend. Because by contract work, they're, they're, it's much less expensive for an employer because they're not paying your benefits. For you, if you need health insurance, uh, employer provided, uh, or you need, it's helpful to have an uh, employer provided retirement uh, plan, which you can contribute to. This is, this is a real stumbling block. So I caution people about that. The other things I see coming out is our entrepreneurship is hot. It had started prior to the pandemic. I 
in fact, wrote a book about never too old to get rich uh, for midlife entrepreneurs. So the Kaufman Foundation had been seeing these numbers of people over 45 and over 50 starting businesses. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that trend on this podcast. Yeah. Pedal to the metal now, you know, after during, because particularly as older workers uh, reevaluate and, and others reevaluated their priorities and what their work meant to them. And maybe they were laid off or maybe they took an early retirement package and they say, you know what, I don't want to deal with the slog of job seeking again and trying to get through the computerized resume systems, the, you know, AI screening you out and all of these things that make it harder to find a job when you're over a certain age. I'm just going to do my own thing. This is what I've always wanted to do. And so they're giving it a shot. So I see a real uptick in entrepreneurship. And I also see uh, an uptick in learn in learning, which is really uh, special because if we're going to, and as as Bradley Sherman and you talked about in his Super Age book, extend our working lives to fit our long- longer lives, productive lives, you need to constantly be learning. And uh, it's like, if you're not learning, you're not earning kind of thing. So during the pandemic, what we saw is this surge of online educa- educational opportunities where you can get certificates, just ramp up a certain skill. You can all kinds of new things came up that you don't have to get a master's degree or be in person. Many great uh, higher education institutions had offerings online and continue to. So I just think there's this explosion of online education that is making it possible for people to really stay relevant in their jobs and also push forward into new jobs. And the final thing coming out of the pandemic is career transitions. And so again, as I said, I wrote about what's next this has been happening for a while, but but during this two-year period, we've seen, as people are getting back to work, an enormous amount of career transition. People, again, reevaluating, what is it I really want to be doing? And so what they've done is, and, and it's not reinventing themselves, a lot of it is redeploying their current skill sets adding new ones into their in, into their quiver as needed, but it's definitely been a repositioning into pursue new fields. And have you seen much difference between what men and women are doing as they reposition or come up with new arrows in their quiver? Well, you know, the thing is, I think more women are starting businesses. And again, they they had started that trend beforehand, but I definitely have seen an escalation in that women starting their own businesses. One reason is, I think one of it has, has really been tied. It's been harder for women of a certain age to get rehire to find a new job if you've been laid off or or taken a package to go in-house again because not only are you just the older worker in ageism but it's also lookism so you know how you look off and uh, if they judge you to be uh, looking old that becomes an issue so th- the point is women have lots of things but also this is what I truly think it is it's the caregiving and it's not just for kids it's for caregiving for adults during the pandemic, I, my mom was 91 and had dementia and I cared for her. My sister and I, I'm telling you, I was hanging by a thread trying to get work done. And if I had been in-house at a job, I don't know if I could have done that. But because I was an independent worker, had my own business, I was able to do that. So I think the flexibility of being an entrepreneur really appeals to women at certain ages in their lives, whether they're a mom or even a grandma helping out or... Mostly, I I see it caring for aging relatives, or it could be even an aging spouse. Now, you'd mentioned your book is coming out in April, which is when this podcast will air. 
in control at 50 plus, how to succeed in the new world of work. In this, you encapsulate some of these trends. Do you also give advice to people on how they should react to the trends and what they should do? Without question, I go deep dive into everything from how to, you know, do virtual interviews, how to do your resumes, how to go about finding capital to launch your business and how to ask yourself those tough questions. You know, why me? Why now? Why this product or service? You know, really getting honest with yourself. I I talk a lot about doing that soul searching and the inner MRI of really taking the time to own yourself, own your skills, own who you are today and where you want to go and and get yourself that firm grounding before you launch forward. But each of these categories that we just talked about, I have uh, chapters and with news you can use, resources, lots of resources to help people move forward into looking at how they really uh, take control of their working life and you know, to approach it like me, Inc., as we've talked about this for years. I mean, but it's not like, you know, no matter whether you're working for someone who's a full-time, your full-time uh, main employer or not, you should. I'm a big fan of the side hustle. Even when I worked for Forbes and U.S. News and USA Today, I was always freelancing on the side because <laughs> I never wanted to be have all my eggs in one basket. And I always liked the idea of writing about lots of different things. So, I do think that we're going to see a lot more of that, but the book is really, I hope it's a real roadmap for people. Yeah. And we'll publish the link to it in our show notes for this show. So I was, you know, in prepping, I was reading your LinkedIn and I love the last line of your about section, which says, what gets me motivated each day is making a difference in someone's life by helping them build their network, land a job they love and sharing a message of practical advice, hope, optimism, value, enthusiasm, and resilience. So I think in saying that you've encapsulated what so many of my third act guests are doing in the sense of giving back, how do you practice that every day? I tell you, it is just, you know, I, I write, actually write in the book too, I say, everyone has to have a mission statement. You know, company, it's not just a company or a nonprofit. Have your own darn mission uh, statement so you honestly know why you get up and do what you do. What is it? Because if you're just doing it for a paycheck, okay, but truthfully, you're not going to find a lot of joy in that, I don't believe, ultimately. And so for me, I really spent a lot of time figuring out what is, how do I draw the line? And I think particularly when you run your own business and you get offers to do lots of different kinds of projects, how do you draw, how do you make that decision about, should I take this project or not that project? You know, it's like, and if you have that core belief system about what do you want to do? Okay, I know that if I take this assignment or I take on this project, I can impact somebody in a positive way. That's a good signal. You know, it's not that, oh, they're going to pay me all, all this money. No, because I'll be miserable if I do that job. I know I will. But if I do one that I feel like I make a connection, and I tell you the letters, and when you get feedback from people, whether it's an email or a letter or a phone call, or if you're on, you know, talking and you have call ins to something or you're speaking and someone comes up to you, those are moments that are that tell us this is why we do it. I get high. I'm like walking on air after I get these that I know I've made. I'm like, geez, this is it, you know? And so you, you make that transition so it's not about you, it's about them and it's about others. And when you give rather than receive, like it, it's amazing that that sort of power that has. And also, I do also get teased all the time, especially by my husband, that I'm like this upbeat kind of gal, you know, like in, in a Groundhog Day, I think he teases her about that. And the fact of the matter is I am, but I'm I'm also uh, realistic. I mean, I, I definitely see the world with 
half full and I look forward, I real, but I, I make note that, that everything's not perfect, that we have to make, you know, we, we're all going to have obstacles that we work around. But, but the point is, I think if you're optimistic, you see value in what you do. It is truly, um, you know, something that, that you can carry you forward in your work and the work you do. And it resonates and, and you say to yourself, yeah, this is why I get up in the morning. Yeah, I agree. I'm a glass half full person as well. And I, it has it definitely served me well. So I've lost track really of how many acts you've had. So you're well past your third act. You just keep going. And my sense is that you're never going to slow down. So what's, what's next for you? I started a, I went back in house actually to Yahoo Finance, where I'm a senior columnist. And I also can do my outside work, my books, my speaking, and so forth. The things I negotiated to continue to hold on to my my business, so to speak, but they're my primary client now. And I got to tell you, it is amazing. That platform is like 700 million users on, it's the largest personal finance platform in the world. And if I can, I mean, the ability, I'm not saying everyone's going to look at what I write, but the ability to reach more people than any audience I've ever had in my life is tremendous. And so I feel like wow, like I'm walking the walk for older workers. Like who thought that someone would, that I would actually be, you know, they found me on LinkedIn, which is what I tell everyone. Make sure you- Come on. They found you on LinkedIn? Yeah. A, re- a, a recruiter found found me on LinkedIn <laughs> through their, you know, they were, they had a position open and they actually, you know, kind of developed this position for what I wanted to write about and what I wanted to do. And it was sort of extraordinary. It was lightning fast from the time the recruiter uh, approached me and I accepted the job because I thought, wow, I'm 61 years old and they are offering me this amazing platform and, you know, financially rewarding. And also um, just, it was, you know, feeling respected. When you work for yourself, you're constantly slogging it out. And, um, and particularly when you sell words for a living, which is what I do, it's been fairly devalued in, in recent years, the value of a, a word it is sort of uh, from when Huffington Post came on and started not paying writers. So the model really shifted. And so it's a struggle to earn a living that way. And when the pandemic shut down most of my speaking opportunities, which was what was a major part of my platform, this came as just a gift and I am having a blast and it's fully, it's fully remote. I don't have to go into an office and still work the way with, with the flexibility that I enjoy, but I'm having great. And guess what? My, my editor is 20 years or so younger than me. I mean, it's all the stuff that I've been telling older workers about and I love it. I just love it. I, I'm so energized by it and um, it's really been fun. Yeah. And we'll, we'll publish the link to that as well. Cause I was reading some of your articles yesterday. So I thought about naming this podcast. I'm not done yet. What aren't you done with yet? Oh, I'll probably be writing more books because I love to write books, but maybe, oh gosh, Liz, maybe I'll get to write that horse book. So thanks for mu- so much for joining me today on third act. Where can our listeners find you online? com. So it's K-E-R-R-Y-H-A-N-N-O-N.com is my website. My Twitter is at Carrie Hannon and I'm on LinkedIn. Facebook, wherever, but um, Twitter and my webpage will take you where you need to go. Great. And we will publish all that in the show notes. Thanks so much. And we look forward to following your 10th, 11th, 12th act as you go forward. (laughs) (laughs) Such fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. 
If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.